1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: I'm John Ellis. And
2: I'm Rebecca Darst.
0: From The Recount and iHeartRadio, it's the News Items Podcast.
2: Every Monday through Thursday afternoon, we bring you news items from three major storylines disrupting modern life, a world in disarray, the financialization of everything and advances in science and technology.
0: And sometimes we talk politics. Today, we have three news items. And then after the break, an interview with investment guru Bob Rice.
2: For our first item. We talked about the election in Greenland earlier this week, John, and now the results are in. The left-wing Inuit Atakatigit party has won, and that means that a valuable rare-earth mining project may be put on hold or canceled altogether.
0: Next up will be Tops, the 83-year-old bubblegum and baseball card company. It's going public via a SPAC.
2: Finally, a Gallup poll shows that Democrats have the biggest numerical advantage over Republicans since 2012.
0: After the break, we'll have an interview with our friend Bob Rice, author of Alternative Investing and one of the all-time great guys.
2: He's a triple threat, a quadruple threat. Bob is the founder and head of Tangent Capital, but he's also been a Justice Department trial lawyer, an entrepreneur, a CEO, and a best-selling author, as well as a chess grandmaster, I believe. We talk about private equity, Jay Powell, one of our favorites, and MMT, among other fun topics. And then, as usual, we'll close with important headlines from the world of science and tech.
0: All right, let's get to the items.
2: First, from our World in Disarray storyline, Greenlanders have voted for a new parliament in a snap election that hinged on whether to allow an Australian company with Chinese investors to mine a huge rare earths deposit. The answer probably not, at least not right now. Uh,
0: Rebecca, I'm counting on you. (laughs)
2: That's right.
0: (laughs) To to take us through what happened yesterday.
2: All right, so Kveinefjell is the name of an undeveloped mining deposit in the southern part of the country that the U.S. Geological Survey has identified as potentially the world's largest undeveloped deposit of rare earth minerals. They're used in defense components, smartphones, EV batteries for electric vehicles, pretty much any digital consumer item that you can imagine. And they're in short supply. Most of the world's known resources are located in China. So obviously there is some strategic tensions around that. Greenland would like continued independence, both political and financial, from Denmark, which currently subsidizes roughly one-third of its budget. More than 90% of its exports come from fisheries, specifically shrimp fishing. So it does have a very concentrated and limited scope of economic activities But an issue over whether to permit exploration and development created some political stirrings and a left-wing party, IA, that's what we're going to call it, the name is long, uh, has emerged victorious. The decision not to move forward with the Kfianofjall project, in my view, that doesn't mean it's never going to happen. It just means it's not going to happen right now and not under this particular configuration of investors.
0: Was the fact that the Chinese owned, whatever, 10% or something of the mining company, was? do you think that was a factor? Did the press report on that? Absolutely, yes.
2: It didn't become clear until much later in press reporting, et cetera, that uh, this company is actually 10% owned by a Chinese company with close ties to Beijing. And for a country that is a small island nation that suddenly finds itself in this newly strategically powerful position, they want to safeguard their independence, right?
0: Right. So it's a little bit like Norway in that you have this vast resource, right, which Mm -hmm. is going to create enormous wealth. Yes. So they can certainly afford to be choosy.
2: Yeah. For the benefit of our listeners, I mean, Norway is home to vast oil resources. Its sovereign wealth fund, which invests its offshore petroleum revenues, is the world's largest sovereign wealth fund. It has $1.1 trillion dollars. In assets, and it owns 2% of every security traded on the planet. <laughs> I am reasonably confident that within our lifetime, we will see a Greenlandic rare earth minerals sovereign wealth fund that will be solving a lot of problems for Greenland. <laughs> but it's, this is not something to rush into, right? I mean, this is- Yeah,
0: no reason. <laughs>
2: so this is an interesting story, what's going on in Greenland. They're taking control of their destiny and their future, and that's a great story. Moving on to baseball cards. John- Did you collect baseball cards? Do you still collect baseball cards?
0: I don't. I did. My brother was the great collector of baseball cards and had a suitcase full of cards, Uh which sadly, terribly sadly, my mother threw away.
2: What was the jewel in the crown of your baseball card collection?
0: I think uh, the you know the sort of first edition, Carl Yastrzemski. If you're from Boston, oh, that's a big Carl deal. Yastrzemski, yeah, uh huh. Mickey Mantle, <laughs> Joe Torre, Roger Maris, on yeah. and on and on. Yeah, uh, a terrible, terrible decision by my mother. My God rest her. Yeah, soul. I mean
2: it's a complete asset class. It's a total independent asset class. And in our financialization of everything storyline, tops the company that sells trading cards along with a rock-hard piece of chewing gum, is going public. The company has vacillated between public and private ownership several times over its 83 years in business. This time, it's going public by merging with a SPAC called Mudrick Capital. Their shares rose 15% on the news.
0: Adding to this is the former Disney chief executive officer, Michael Eisner, who has taken the company Tops and reimagined it. And collectibles have been extremely resilient, even during the pandemic.
2: That's right. So, Eisner in 2007 bought Tops for just under $400 million. According to its valuation, the SPAC merger, it's valued at $1.3 billion today. So, that's a nice return for Mr. Eisner. 3x. What do you think? Um, Banking on baseball cards—is that a good bet?
0: This one has, as I understand it, has real revenues and is not a sort of vaporware. It's actually got a balance sheet that could, in theory, at least support a billion-dollar valuation and and perhaps go up as well.
2: It's interesting because in 2020, the pandemic year, where all kinds of retail activities were disrupted, Tops showed a 23% gain in revenue. So it was a good year for tops, but I think that's been consistent across many collectibles type platforms. There are all kinds of online platforms where you can invest in whether it's comic books or uh, memorabilia, rarities connected to various aspects of popular culture. I mean, those have enjoyed tremendous popularity in recent years and you don't even have to buy the, you know, the full item. You can invest fractionally in shares like uh, Rally Road and and others like that. I mean, it's a, there's a whole new investment subclass of collectibles and fractions of collectibles. And now I think we're even going to see digital uh, representations of collectibles through NFTs. You know, for the longest time, baseball cards were valuable because there was a manufactured scarcity around the cards. And then suddenly when they were available everywhere, their value was sort of dropped because there was supply everywhere. And it's interesting. I wonder how tops under the leadership of Michael Eisner is going to remanufacture scarcity around player cards and the role that NFTs might play in that. Can you imagine like the most valuable card of the 2020 MLB season? I bet it's going to prove to have been Anthony Fauci throwing out the first pitch on opening day. Fauci's first pitch. There right. you go.
0: We need the Reddit Game Stoppers to meet the uh, baseball card investment uh, community and go crazy. (laughs) Uh, But let's get to the next item.
2: Okay. Now from our electoral politics basket, Gallup reports that 49% of adults in the U.S. identify as Democrats or Democratic-leaning independents, while 40% identify as Republicans or Republican-leaning independents. The nine-point spread is the biggest gap between the two parties since 2012, when Gallup's poll showed the same 49-40 to split in the Democrats' favor. John You are the expert here. What do these numbers tell us about the future of the Republican Party?
0: I think the first thing to say is that these numbers are surprisingly good for the Republican Party. I mean, if you go back to the beginning of the year, what did we have? We had the Capitol riot. The Biden administration sent out all the stimulus checks. The vaccination campaign has gone extremely well. You know, you would think that given everything going the Democrats' way, that party ID would be somewhere north of 50. You would think the Republicans would be further down, and they're not. I mean, they're obviously trail, but it's not as bad as I thought it would be. The second point is the number of people who identify as independents has increased, and the worry there for the Republicans is that people who formally identified as Republicans are beginning to migrate over to the Democratic side and their pit stop, if you will, is independence. Mm -hmm. If you were a Republican operative or a Republican elected official, you would be quite concerned about that. But in general, it's not as bad as the numbers look. In my view, it's surprisingly good for the Republicans, given everything going against them these last three months.
2: Why do you think Democrats have not done better, given the kind of turmoil that was associated with Trump, et cetera, and, and COVID for that matter?
0: You know, I, there was a Obama operative who was on some podcast or something. Uh, I heard it like two or three years ago. And he said the thing about modern elections is you start out with 47 percent of the electorate being Democratic or wanting to vote Democratic, and 45% of the electorate being Republican or wanting to vote Republican. And so elections are about the 8 or 9% that are left trying to persuade yeah. those people one way or the other. And this is sort of more supportive of that view, right? If you say that very conservative voters are unlikely to talk to mainstream pollsters, you know, there's a lot of evidence that that's true, Mm-hmm. Then you know you could easily fudge forty to forty-five, and the you know Democrats are at forty-nine. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what that Obama operative was talking about.
2: Do you think that's just a reflection on the state of the American electorate, anno twenty twenty-one? No matter what happens on the ground, people just have this emotional affiliation with being a Republican or a Democrat, and that's the way it's going to be.
0: It's one of the big findings of political science in the last ten years is. You see things through your partisan lens, right? So you look at the Capitol riot, for instance, and, you know, some surprisingly large number of Republicans think that an attempted insurrection at the U.S. Capitol is not really a big deal. So, yeah, I mean, I think if you wear a red jersey, you see things the red way and come hell or high water, you see it that way. And if you wear a blue jersey, same thing. That's the big change from when I first started covering politics was the number of persuadables has dramatically declined. And the Jersey politics, I'm on the red team, you're on the blue team, has come to be almost overwhelmingly a fact of modern American politics.
2: All right. Well, that's it for the news items today. As you know, John, I had the pleasure of speaking with our mutual friend, Bob Rice, I think people are going to really enjoy this conversation. He's very down-to-earth. He's fun to talk to. And we got into an illuminating discussion about one of our favorite people on Earth, Fed Chair Jay Powell.
0: And as you and I both know, News Items is on Team J. Team J. One thing about Bob is that both he and his wife are subscribers to news items. And I can see on the little stats page who opens it, how many times, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And his wife, Lenore, is a more devoted reader. Than really? Bob. Yeah, much by much, but you know, by <laughs> my calculations, uh, a little bit more than perhaps should be the case.
2: All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll hear the conversation with Bob Rice. So by way of an intro, I can't think of a better person to talk about the nexus of world in disarray, financialization of everything, science and technology headlines, generalized global disruption at the portfolio level than alt expert slash guru Bob Rice, founder and head of Tangent Capital the esteemed boutique investment bank and broker dealer here in the New York City area. Bob, it's great to see you.
1: Rebecca, it's absolutely amazing and wonderful to see you. And the only reason yep. I know anything about any of those topics is because I've been an avid reader of news items from day one. That's why. That's
2: right. That's right. That's where people get the straight the straight scoop. That's right. All right. So, I mean, private equity has for so long been the perfect villain, right? I mean, this carried interest tax loophole has been maligned by <laughs> individuals well, on both right sides of the political right aisle. Rightly so, long- right so. so. Yeah, right. I mean they ha you know, I mean they have a reputation for gutting, you know, taking over companies, loading them down with debt, cutting jobs right and left. They're terrible for communities. They're not great for governance. I mean the value you question whether the value creation is really is it legitimate value creation do you see an opportunity in the current market given the companies that are you know in development maybe the focus on emerging areas of biotech for example where private equity could redeem itself in the public eye by funding r&d let's say transformational development for the good of humanity is that a <laughs> utopian view of private equity
1: it's probably a utopian view of the public eye. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whether or not the public uh, perceives uh, the value that private equity does convey uh, is, you know, that's a question for you and John Ellis, but yeah. not me. But look, it's a fact that private equity is an engine of capitalism. Yeah. And this country is built on capitalism. And it is a force for positive development. And certainly, it's a very important thing for fueling the dynamism of this economy, that is for sure.
2: Now, when you and I have talked in the past about human beings who are good at taking a discretionary view on an investment or a sector or you know a basket of companies and connecting the dots, you've talked about it in terms of making the case for active management as opposed to passive. Shall we revisit that topic momentarily? Do you see COVID having reinforced the case in favor of active management or is that done? Is that a thing of the past? Will AI have poached that space entirely?
1: Oh, gosh, I don't think AI will have poached the space because AI and machine learning are built inherently on previous patterns. And unless you're going to tell me that the future patterns are going to look exactly like the past patterns, then I'm going to tell you that, no, that's like literally not possible. Forgive me when I point out things like COVID. Like yeah. show me that in the models that existed before COVID. It's right. it's completely ludicrous. And the traditional ways of measuring risk in a portfolio and doing risk-adjusted returns, which is, you know, let's look at historical volatility and then claim that's the level of risk. And these are all nonsensical things. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not worried about that. But I, I would say frankly though, that the yeah. future of active management is non-public securities. Ah. That is really where the real active management comes from, because now you're going in and actually helping these companies get better at what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And you're using your knowledge to help that and to make a profit. What's so weird about the public markets these days is, you know, it's literally impossible to use an information advantage without going to jail. But that's not the case in the private market world. Mm-hmm. You can use your information advantage and make money with it. I mean, that sounds like a fairly trivial observation, I suppose, but I actually think it's kind of important in terms yeah. of how you actually create real real value and certainly real alpha.
2: Yeah, well, certainly information asymmetries. I mean, that's a compelling point. It's funny, I was going to tell you this story. I heard about a trader's poster next to their trading station that said the market of the future consists of a computer, a man, and a dog. And the computer's job is to trade, the man's job is to feed the dog, and the dog's job is to bite the man if he tries to touch the computer. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> that's the future of traders, the future of trading. <laughs> In the public markets, in the public markets. right? (laughs) But, uh, you know, so private equity, I mean, obviously their interest is going to be in in, uh, maximizing that information asymmetry and keeping companies close again.
1: Look, I mean, you you haven't mentioned it, but I I think that the the public markets are such a fascinating place to look at these days because we are in the proto stages of modern monetary theory, whether anybody wants to admit it or not. The Treasury is issuing debt like nonstop, and the Fed's yes. buying it up nonstop with money that they're printing. And so here you are. And we're in the fourth generation of the uh, Greenspan put at yeah. this point. And it's just the put gets bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper and more and more ingrained in psychology every day that goes by. So what do you do with all of that?
2: You know, we're team Jay Powell on the News Items podcast. We like Jay Powell. But I I know that his average inflation targeting is tough for this market to make heads or tails of. Where do you come down on that?
1: (laughs) Isn't that the point? I think he's supposed to be saying things that are are supposed to sound like they have a great deal of certainty, but have none. I believe that's the whole art of being a Fed speak. Look, you've got to ask yourself the question after... $25 $25 trillion or whatever it is of new money has been injected, liquidity has been injected into the global economic system by central banks since the great financial crisis. Where's the inflation? You tell me where the inflation is.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, where is the inflation? <laughs> where
1: is the inflation? You know, John Maynard was asked, somebody, yeah. you know, when the facts change, what do you do, sir? And he says, I changed my mind. What do you do? You've got to look at this. It drives me crazy that now yeah. all of a sudden everybody's, oh, inflation's going to take off. Yeah. Okay, well maybe so, but why this time? Because we've yeah. all said that like 20 times since 2008 and yes. it hasn't happened. So right. let's let's like reexamine that. Now part of it I think that people don't pay enough attention to is the deflationary power mm-hmm. of technology. It is overwhelmingly deflationary. Think about the cost of communications 15 years ago calling someone in Africa As opposed to now getting on WhatsApp for free or, you know, video chatting with them for free or looking, you know, you and I are talking to each other right now and and doing this podcast and and the telecommunications costs are almost zero. Mm -hmm. You know, that times 500 different segments, profoundly deflationary. We've, We've gotten so much more efficient at using societal resources, everything from shared use of of cars to shared use of homes, Airbnb, you know, look at how big Airbnb is. How much money did Airbnb spend to control more rooms than any publicly traded hotel company in the world? Yeah. Zero.
2: <laughs> how, <laughs>
1: many, how many new yeah. concierge jobs did they create? None. How many <laughs> new bartenders? None. Zero. Yeah, You can't tell me that that is not crazy deflationary. It yeah. is. Again, so inflation targets, uh, OK, yeah. <laughs> like, whatever. I do not even know what inflation means because it's yeah. not a generalized concept where there is some general rate of inflation and things all things go up in cost at the same rate. There are pockets of inflation. There are massive pockets of disinflation or deflation. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that as an, quote, an inflation target? So Powell
2: has been very vocal in recent months about concentrating on the maximum employment side of the Fed's mandate and looking at the the massive amount of people who have dropped out of the workforce, not just as a result of COVID, but certainly as a result of the kind of technology driven economic shifts that we've seen. Are the forces of, of modern society working against him in that respect? I mean, is there only so much a Fed chair can do?
1: Of course, there's only a certain amount of stuff that the Fed Chair can do. You know, if you're on Team Powell, I didn't realize you were, but I am too, (laughs) because I I think that this is one of the things that is really vital. Is that we do pay much more attention to that stuff because you've got massive societal discord that is arising from the grotesque underemployment of even purportedly employed people, and we have to be better at addressing that. And it's not Congress doing it. So who is going to focus on that? So I applaud him for having that point of view. So
2: what can he do other than make rousing speeches? I mean, now that inflation is this kind of fictitious historical term, what can he do?
1: What can he realistically do? He can realistically, uh, I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily the best possible idea, but you're asking me, what could he do? Uh, He could continue to push more and more on ideas that are effectively direct stimulus payments to people who are in need. That is something that can be enabled by the Fed continuing to buy up Treasury bonds. It depends on how the Treasury is spending that money. But if he continues to buy those bonds, then all of a sudden you've got an awful lot of capital that can be deployed by the government in ways that would ameliorate the social tensions which are otherwise arising.
2: Like universal basic income. Is that sort of what you mean?
1: You said that. I, I said I just, that. for the record. I want everybody to know. But you know, look, we're getting there anyway. You're gonna mm-hmm. see more and more things that are, you know, refundable tax credits, which yeah. are UBI by a different name, and other kinds of ideas like that. I think it's I, I honestly I just literally don't think there's any other way for this to go. You may hate it politically, it may grind you. I know it grinds a lot of my friends, but I, I don't think there's another choice. I think that's the only way it's going to go. And so, you know, I suppose I guess I would say I'm happy to see it, that I believe the Fed chair gets that yeah. and is willing to enable it. You know, I'm just yeah. thinking again about John Maynard Keynes since we mentioned him a few minutes ago and and thinking about, you know, you know modern monetary theory is not a really a new idea. The old name for it is functional finance, and it's effectively the same thing. And May- John Maynard Keynes was asked about functional finance and what he thought about it vis-a-vis the kind of household budget theory of modern, you know, the way we all mm-hmm. think about governmental, you know, expenditures. Well, we only have so much income, so we can only spend so much money, which, of course, ignores the fact that government can print the money. And that's the, you know, the key insight of MMT, right? And so when asked about this, John Maynard Keynes said, you know, he thought the functional finance thing probably was, you know, workable theory, probably worked, but that the household budget thing was a useful myth, quote, unquote. That we should propagate because we didn't want governments to be running on an uncontrolled basis in terms of their ability to print money and and augment power to the people in charge of the money printing. So Mm -hmm. he thought it was a useful myth, that household budget analogy. And I think that analogy is really, really, really coming under increased, increased pressure and may start to break pretty soon.
2: All right, Bob. A pleasure as always. You're an expert in all things, financial, engineering, and otherwise. Thank you for joining News Items this week.
1: Okay. It was was my pleasure. Thanks very much. It was great.
2: Thanks very much.
0: That was a great interview, Rebecca.
2: You know, usually when I talk to Bob Rice, compliance is in the room, so we hardly knew what to say to each other. (laughs) You know, there was no corporate compliance in the room when we had our conversation. So I hope you all enjoyed that. Now for our science and tech headlines. First, Iran's uranium enrichment continues even as the country engages in indirect talks with Washington about reviving the 2015 nuclear deal. Iranian authorities said today that since January, Iran has made 55 kilograms of highly enriched uranium, a big step toward making it weapons-grade. And that indicates a production rate beyond the 10 kilograms per month recently set by Iran's parliament. John, what's your quick take on this potentially ominous news?
0: I think the only leverage the Iranians really have is the threat of the development of a nuclear weapon, right? Mm -hmm. They really need the sanctions to be lifted. The U.S. has been adamant that they won't be lifted, or if they are, that it will be in small increments. And so given that, Iran is doing pretty much the only thing it can do, which is to say, we're going to speed ahead with the development of nuclear weapons until you lift the sanctions.
2: So, from Iran to Brazil, our next headline is about how Brazil continues to struggle with a huge surge in COVID 19 deaths. Reuters reports that the Brazilian healthcare system is at a breaking point. And for the first time, more than 4,000 people died in one day just yesterday. Now, experts are saying Brazil's death toll could surpass America's, even though Brazil's population is two-thirds that of the U.S. Sad news, bad news. Yeah, it
0: just gets worse and worse. So
2: these are somber numbers, but as you have written about on News Items quite extensively, we're back to a race between variants and vaccines, as you put it. So we'll be following that story.
0: Thanks for listening to News Items, the podcast. You should also get the newsletter, News Items, on Substack. Just Google the words Substack news items, and it'll come right up.
2: For more insights on all things real assets, check out my website. That's InvestableUniverse.com. That's it from us today. News items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news from our three major storylines: the financialization of everything, a world in disarray, and advances in science and technology.